outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on Seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. After three years of work, our follow-up to the Meat Eater Fish and Game Cookbook is here. It's the Meat Eater Outdoor Cookbook, wild game recipes for the grill, smoker, campfire, and camp stove. Here is your book for everything that's best cooked or eaten outside, from grilling to open fire cooking to Dutch ovens to smokers to barbecue to backpacking meals to how to pull off the perfect fish fry with pit stops along the way for lessons about ice age cooking methods and the best five ways to construct a cooking fire you can be proud of. And of course, we're focusing on wild game and fish here with over 100 recipes, including stuffed venison burgers three ways, wild duck with ahi verde sauce, a jerky made with cola, a gin and tonic made with fire charred lemons, and grilled frog legs made with a sticky sweet sauce. This ain't your normal cookbook, so be prepared to be surprised. Get your copy now. For more info, visit TheMeatEater.com or buy it wherever books are sold. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your guide to the whitetail woods. Presented by First Light, creating proven, versatile hunting apparel for the stand, saddle, or blind. First Light. Go farther, stay longer. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. This week on the show, we've got an absolute masterclass with Mark Drury about the habits, personalities, and behaviors of the biggest, oldest bucks he's ever hunted. All right, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by First Light and their Camo for Conservation program. A portion of every sale of their Whitetail Camo products goes to support the National Deer Association. Pretty cool stuff right there. Proud to have them supporting this podcast, and I am proud to be bringing you a dang good episode today, folks. We've got a banger for you. Every year, I like to get my good buddy, Mr. Mark Drury, on the show because I think he's... Yeah, without a doubt, one of the very, very, very best out there. He's a great communicator, a great uh, hunter, of course, and and just someone who has a mind unlike many others when it comes to understanding big old bucks. And as you hopefully know by now, our theme this month of September has been getting into the minds of those biggest, oldest deer. What do these super mature deer do, think, why do they do things? Um, what can we learn about these mature bucks that can help us as hunters if we so choose to chase that kind of buck? So today, that's what we're doing. Mark has got all sorts of experience over decades and decades and decades of watching these kinds of deer, studying these kinds of deer, and successfully hunting them. So today, I'm breaking it all down with Mark. We're asking him everything from you know, the different personality traits he's seen in super mature bucks to the consistencies he's seen with those types of deer, as well as the weird quirks and the weird personality traits that he's seen that have 
kind of bucked the trend and how he's studied those, how he's learned those, and how he's been able to apply the unique insights that you can get when trying to figure out a specific old buck and then try to catch up with him. So we get into a lot of good stuff. This is a uh, terrific episode. Um, I want to just give you a couple quick uh, reminders and updates before we get into the meat and potatoes here. So number one, I've mentioned this over the last three weeks. I'm going to mention it again. Yes, today's episode is about big old deer, mature bucks. I want to make sure if you're listening to this though, and you've never killed a big old buck, or if that's something you're not sure you want to do, or you're not sure if you're going to do, uh, don't worry about it. That's fine. That's cool. Shoot the first deer you see if that makes you happy. Shoot a doe if that makes you happy. Shoot a spike if that makes you happy. Shoot a two-year-old, a three-year-old, whatever it is. Have fun out there. That's what deer hunting's all about. Do not worry at all about what you see in the magazine covers or what you hear Marjorie talking about when it comes to the kinds of deer he's personally choosing to hunt. Don't let what I choose to hunt impact you at all. Hunt your own hunt. Whatever it is that you want to chase, that is awesome. If I could, I'd give you a big old high five no matter what kind of deer you're shooting. Because this is about hunting your own personal hunt for your own personal reasons. As long as you're doing it ethically and legally, we support you and we want you to have fun out there. So make sure you're doing that. Do not let anyone's personal goals influence or pressure you into doing something you're not sure you want to. All that said, we are excited to talk about old deer because they're cool, they're fascinating, they're challenging, and if you are at that point in your hunting journey where that's what you're doing, Mark's got a lot to share. So that's point number one. Point number two, last week, actually last weekend, I was down in Mississippi for one of my Working for Wildlife Tour events, and it was awesome. And I just want to say thank you to everybody who came out. We had more than 80 volunteers who came out to work on this national forest to do some good work on public land that's going to help deer, it's going to help quail, it's going to help turkeys, it's going to help birds and butterflies and endangered gopher tortoises and all sorts of critters are going to benefit from the work that these hunters and anglers did. We planted 35 acres of food plots and 200 crab apple trees. Let me say it again, 35 acres of food plots and 200 crab apple trees on public land. How awesome is that? It was a just a terrific event. We had a lot of fun, got to share stories. Uh, I just, I just, uh, I loved it. It was charging. It was, it was energizing and uh, I'm feeling great about that. And I want to give you guys all a heads up that our last event is coming up in Kentucky on October 14th. So if you are in southern Illinois, southern Indiana, southern Ohio, Kentucky, anywhere around there, this is your chance. This is your last chance for the year to come and hang out with me. And this week, my good buddy Giannis Putellis is going to be joining me for that event. So uh, come on down, hang with me and Yanni. We're going to be working on the Daniel Boone National Forest near the town of London, Kentucky. And we're going to be doing a white oak acorn collection project so they can use these acorns to reforest other parts of the National Forest. So it's going to be a great event. We're going to have fun together. We're going to tell some stories. We're going to share some hunting tips and tricks probably along the way since we'll be leading into the pre-rut. But hey, it's October 14th. That's not a bad day to take the midday off and go do some good work for wildlife. Take that middle of the part of the day off. If you want, you can hunt that night still. You can get out on Sunday and still hunt. But give me just a little bit of your time, if you're in that zone, to give back to these critters, give back to public land, 
have some fun with your hello, fellow hunters and anglers, and uh, then we can all dive in with both feet into the pre-rut, leading into the rut, and all the crazy stuff that's about to come in. But I'm telling you, it's going to be some good karma if you get out there and pick up some acorns with me. So now, my friends, my family, my people, my fellow whitetail nerds, it is time to chat with the one and only the mad scientist himself, one of the best to ever do it, Mr. Mark Drury. Here we go. All right, back with me on the show, we've got the one and only Mr. Mark Drury. Mark, thanks for being here. Hey, thanks for having me, Mark. Good to, good to see you, and congrats on that Wisconsin buck. That was pretty awesome. Thank you. Yeah, it was... Uh, a really nice surprise to start the season. You always you always hope for those early starts like that, but you never know. And uh, it's it's great when it works out that way. So absolutely, I, absolutely. With that in mind, um, I got to ask you: your season kicked off right about the same time that mine did over there in Missouri for you. Can you give me a quick lowdown of what's what's been happening so far? Not a lot. It's a quick lowdown. Um, they've been really dark here. The first night was pretty good. We had two different camera crews out and both camera crews saw mature deer. Um, both of them saw, we saw five-year-old and coon dog. Uh, I think that deer, coon dog and way, that deer was probably five or six. So we were like, man, this is great. We're off to a great start. And then slowly but surely over the next three or four nights, it got worse and worse and worse, less age class walking to no age class, to very few deer walking. As the temperatures heated up, the pressure dropped, and acorns have started to fall. Very typical this time of the year, phase one, for, from a 13 perspective. They just all kind of kind of vanished. So we, we'd made a collective decision to stay out until conditions got better. Rather than burn our spots, we just let our cell cams kind of dictate what we're doing, and we really haven't, haven't hunted the last four or five days here. So we're going to go again tonight um and tomorrow night and then probably relax a day or two and then there's a little front coming through it's not a major it's a minor but the pressure is rising after this front which i think will help because we're getting not only rising pressure but into a rising moon and i think both of those conditions will help as we we go into next week and next week our catch a dream family arrives so i always try to plan that hunt in and around favorable conditions this year i I put it exactly on the three nights that the rising moon was perfect in terms of daylight activity for an afternoon movement so they're going to be hunting the 27th 28th and 29th of september with us so uh that'll be here in iowa of course we've been hunting in missouri because the the youth you the youth season is going on here in iowa so that's that's what we're preparing for we've done a lot of work getting ready to make sure we've we've got uh Cooper in the right spot. So that's, that's always a, a fun, fun hunt and uh, one that we want to make sure we're prepared for. Yeah, that's great. Now, speaking of Iowa, you guys open October 1st for the regular season there, right? Um, we, we do. Yeah, so you can see the extended forecast. Now, I've got the October 1st opener here in Michigan. So I've already been looking at that extended forecast, kind of stressing about it a little bit because we've got pretty warm temps here for those dates. Uh, what's it look like for you there in Iowa and how are you feeling about that? Not, not not great it's pretty warm uh and the other thing that i've noticed for into a pattern where they might predict some cold weather 10 12 days from now but you get there and and by the time you get there the temps are warmer than what they predicted yeah. you know a week and a half ago so 
and I've said it many times, and I'm sure I've said it on your podcast, when you get very stable air that's the same every single day, you can't expect um, amazing daylight activity because um, deer really react, I think, to change with weather. You know, if you, if you watch deer cast and you see those changes come and go and you have a bad period and then it, it dips down and all of a sudden, boom, there's a, a high pressure system with cold weather and rain. They get up and they get moving. But when everything is just the same, the temperature, the pressure, especially if the pressure is down below, you know, 29.9 or something and nothing's changing, it's very difficult to get a target deer on his feet during daylight. You can still do it, but you got to be, you know, you know, it, it'd be risky to get as close as you need to be to get him during daylight. And it can still happen, but it's not going to be with the frequency or the likelihood as if you had those changes coming through with weather fronts. It's just not. Yeah. So um, that's what I see in the future here. Uh, hopefully it gets better. But, um, you know, we are coming out of the darker moon and getting into uh, first quarter. It's starting to rise. And um, hopefully it's it's real good next week when it turns full. I mean, we've historically we've killed so many deer in and around our full moon if you get the right weather conditions it, it's generally more daylight activity so i'm i'm hoping it's better and I, i'm certainly hoping it's better for terry he's really on a on a big deer this year Ooh. and um it, it it's big big so i'm hoping he gets the right conditions to get that deer killed that's exciting like uh his biggest deer big I think it could be. Ooh. It's right. It's knocking on that door. It, you know, when you look at a deer's rack on, on pictures, you really don't know how large that body is. Are you looking at a deer that's going to field dress 225 or one that's going to field dress yeah. 190? And and that changes the perspective of the rack. So, you know, he thinks it's a smaller body deer, so therefore it wouldn't get up to his largest. I personally think it could, uh, but we'll see. Hopefully we get to find out, wow. you know. That's exciting. He, he's been on some... He's taken like another step the last like five years as far as like some of these really, really, really big deer, it seems like. So I'm excited for him. That's great. Absolutely. I am too, man. He's he's really he's really good at what he does. Mm-hmm. And it's it's exciting to see him getting into these giant deer. And he's always killed big yeah. deer, you know. But lately this these last few years, he's had some some upper end stuff, and that's that's fun to see. But he spent the majority of his life hunting there in Missouri. Yeah. And and I've spent the majority of my life hunting in Iowa, and that truly is the difference between the two yeah. states. I mean, you're only as good as your spot, and you're certainly only as good as your state. You know, so um, I th- I think that's that's a a big tell because when we go to Missouri, our results are very similar to Terry's, yeah. but here in Iowa, they they uh, they're generally just bigger deer to hunt. Yep, yep. Well, speaking of like top tier, top tier deer, uh, as we were talking about off the air. And as everyone who's been listening this month knows, our, our theme this month has been old bucks, like getting kind of behind a couple layers of the onion, peeling a couple more layers of the onion off of trying to understand those like top tier oldest mature bucks. Um, what, why, when, where do the oldest, most gnarly, most savvy deer do their thing? Um, and, and you are someone, Mark, who has, you know, literally made a living on understanding those questions and have, uh, have become someone that a lot of us have looked to as far as figuring out the answers to those questions. So, so my first question for you, Mark, on that topic then is just why that kind of deer gets you the way it does, the way I know it does. I mean, I think we've got some assumptions about why it probably does, but what is it about those oldest deer, Mark, that just keeps you up at night and keeps you looking at the phone or the hard drive with all your cell cam pictures or whatever it is and the maps? 
Um, what is it about that kind of deer that, that really gets you excited? Um, well, they physiologically mature at about age four and a half. So by the time they get to five, six, seven, somewhere in that range is generally when they're going to top out from an antler development standpoint and body, you know, body mass, body weight. And those deer are just different. They're, they're difficult to run into during daylight hours. I think that's the thing that differentiates them from, say, a two and a half, three and a half. As you're looking through your pictures, the, the more likely uh, deer that's going to be in front of that camera during a daylight event is something that's, that's immature, two and a half, three and a half. And I personally think the species is built for about three and a half. If you look at how many get to four or five or six, it's not a high likelihood that they're going to even live to that age. Uh, natural mortality is much greater on mature bucks. Um, and by the time they get there, they've seen it all, done it all. And not only that, their metabolism starting to slow down and they're not moving as much to food and, and back and forth. I always correlate them to an older pet. If you watch a dog when the dog's one and a half to say five and a half, when they're still in their youth or their prime, they're quite active. And then by the time they say they get to that 12, 13, 14 year old uh, status, they've slowed down. They're sitting on the porch and not getting up much during daylight hours or not getting much at all. They sleep a lot. And I, I think you can relate that to a, an old buck at age five, six or seven. At age five, they're still in pretty good shape. Uh, age six, I call that the ghost year, man. They are really, really tough to run into. A six and a half year old buck, you have to be extremely lucky or have really optimal conditions and be hunting close to his bedroom without him knowing you're there in order to kill a six and a half year old deer. By the time they get to seven and eight, all of a sudden things turn around a little bit and food becomes more important all of a sudden. So you can really break down mature deer into some categories. Five, they'll still daylight a little bit, much like they did at four. Six, I think it's the ghost year in my opinion. They're very tough to run into. Seven still pretty tough. By the time they're eight and nine, if there's if if things haven't hampered their antler development, they get a lot of health issues the older they get, and a lot of reasons why all of a sudden they don't look so good, you know, because they've gone through multiple ruts, they've gone through, you know, potential EHD or other diseases, and little bitty things affect them, and all of a sudden that antler development doesn't look as good when they're eight or nine. So the likelihood of of killing a trophy nine-year-old, number one, isn't great because you know, chances are they're dead by the time they get that age. Number two, if they are dead, did they have enough health throughout their life that they are of trophy status? So that's really taking a deep dive into different ages. But in reality, I think probably realistically, this question is about five and six-year-old deer because it's not likely you're going to be hunting one much older than that. Yeah. If you are, it's a blessing and a rare occurrence, and you may not get to hunt another one the rest of your life that's seven or eight. Um, so... I, re I really hone in on what that deer's home court area has been and then where I think he's going to be. Because that's the other thing I've seen through time as they age, that home core starts to shrink just a little bit. And what food sources did he daylight on in years past? What food sources am I hunting this year? And, and sometimes that slot machine, I always say it, it takes so many events to, to be in your favor for the slot machine to be all, all jokers and you're going to kill that deer, you know, is the food pattern and the weather matching something that he daylighted on in your hunting area 
in years past. Uh, the likelihood is less that he's going to do it because he's more mature. Um, so a long, long answer to your question. That's what keeps me up at night, trying to figure those things out to get that slot machine to line up to where I actually have a chance of, of seeing that deer during daylight and having him close enough for a, for a bow shot. Uh, they're very tough creatures to run into, and you, you've got to have your A game on in order to succeed with them. I, I, that much I know, man. They are, they're tough critters. Your access has to be right. you got to pick the right days. And then when you get your shot, you can't fall apart. Yep. you got to make that shot because you're probably only going to get one. Yep. You know, chance of getting two, not very high. Yep. So there's a lot of pressure and just, just a lot of things that go into, you know, putting yourself in that situation. Hey, speaking of um, – this is a random aside, but speaking of you're probably only going to get one shot. Um, when we talked on the podcast last year, uh, we had just had that encounter with a big shooter buck. This would have been like – Early October, I think maybe you had the. Yeah. Oh, I remember. You do remember this? Me. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So that happened. Yep. You didn't get the shot at that deer. I, 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 I'm trying to recall the deer that you did end up shooting throughout the rest of the season. Did you end up catching back up with that buck, or is what happened to him? No, no. He was seen one more time, and then trail pictures through November 11th, and nothing since. Didn't show up this summer. So, I think we know how that story uh, <laughs> ended. Heartbreak. <laughs> well, Bummer. I had my chance and I blew it, man. I mean, that deer should have been uh, should have been dead there. I think it was October second or third, and and I just was rusty and didn't didn't make it happen. I mean, that one was one hundred percent on on me. Yeah, one hundred percent. Big deer too. Oof. Big deer. Live and learn. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time, Seafoam Motor Treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that Seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. And it's really simple. When you pour it into your gas tank, Seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can into your gas tank and let it do its job. Now, you probably know someone who's used a can of Seafoam to get their truck or boat going again. Because people everywhere rely on it to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. So, help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. For three days only, save up to 30% off bestsellers from First Light, FHF Gear, Phelps Game Calls, and the Meat Eater Store. They'll also have for sale the Bear Grease Trucker Hats and Camo. They're included in this sale and all the great gear on First Light. Whether you're fishing, shed hunting, scouting, sighting in rifles, or cutting lanes, your gear needs to keep up with all your spring and summer pursuits. The sale has you covered. Hurry, the sale ends May 16th. Shop now at firstlight.com. F-I-R-S-T-L-I-T-E.com. So back to your answer to my original question, there was a whole bunch of things in there that I want to drill into. But one thing I want to um, clarify a little bit, you made a really interesting point. And, and I talked to, uh, we talked to Don Higgins last week, and he said something similar when it comes to the trajectory of uh, 
almost of difficulty of killing these deer in that they have that window, like five, six maybe, where it's really, really hard. And then because they become so mature, it starts to maybe slope down a little bit. If you were to imagine like a line graph that were to show, you know, the the rising difficulty of killing a deer and then the peak of difficulty and then that slope down. Um, am I right in that you're saying it's, is it a slow rise from one, two, three, four, and then it peaks at five and six, and then it drops down a little bit from seven, eight, and then kind of plateaus there? Is that right? Or is there a big jump somewhere? And, and if so, where is that biggest jump in difficulty? I, I, I think one through four is a slow ramp up because you, you're still going to see that three and four year old. But five and six, five starts to jump up in difficulty, and then six is the peak to me. Okay. Six-year-old is the toughest deer to shoot. Seven's about similar to a five, and, a, and I'm really generalizing here. Yeah. Right? You know, there's no science to, to you know, yeah. <laughs> substantiate this. I'm just saying it based on my experience and based on, tr- you know, trail monitoring history. And then it seems like about eight, they start to perhaps become more – um, more dependent on diet and slaves to their stomach yeah. again. You know, young deer, when they're growing, before they physiologically mature at age four and a half, they're back and forth to that food frequently. And they'll get out there early and they got to eat a lot because they're, they're still growing. But then they mature and that slows down. Well, I, I think on the back end of that curve, somewhere around eight years old, they start going back to food, particularly in the winter. It's not as, it's not as prevalent in the early season, but during the winter, they know what's coming and they're a little bit, again, they've had a lot of health issues leading up to this. You know, it's, it's, it's a tough living for a white-tailed deer out in the wild. Yeah. And by the time a deer's eight years old or even seven, depending on how many health issues they've had, particularly that season you're in, they're going to be out there on that, on that food source in December, January with that rough weather. And that much I can promise you. And the same is true. I think one of the best windows of opportunity for any mature deer is December. And, you know, we nicknamed it December years ago. Um, when they go through that rut, it's really tough on them because they're exhorting so much energy. And then they've got to refuel for the tough winter coming. And if you get the right weather in December, that is the most likely month that a mature buck's going to daylight. Um, I've got plans this season for some deer that come back during December and are very, very visible during December. Whereas in October and November, you just can't run into them. You might in November if you get lucky, but October's tough. Hmm. I'm hunting a deer in Missouri right now that at age two, three, four, he'd daylight on this interior plot every night or, well, you know, three times a week. And he hasn't daylighted one time yet this year. Yeah. And he's five and a half. And uh, I think he will, but it, that's a very very good example. And I, I'm, I was just before we got on this podcast, I was looking at my historical pictures through him and I'm putting a file together on him because I've been hunting him. And in my mind, I thought we're going to be able to kill this deer because I've seen him so many times on this plot and he's daylighted a lot. And all of a sudden the earliest pictures I, I have of him this year, nine, nine twenty, nine thirty, something like that. I'm like, I better go back and look and see what he's been like historically. And there's a, there's a little window here when he was four and a half from about the 22nd of September through about October the 11th or 12th, that was pretty good, which is one of my favorite phases. It's it's greener pastures because they've gotten out of those bean fields. Suddenly they're focused in on, on a different food source, and we've got a, a, a really good-looking green field on this interior plot. And I do believe he beds close. 
We'll find out whether he's going to daylight this coming year. My suspicion is I need a really good weather system with a with a favorable moon phase in order to go in there and have luck on him this year. I think those are the things I talk about that slot machine r- lining up. Yep. All the factors have to be right, you know, uh, including your access, including the weather, including his uh, his bed position as as compared to food because they just don't move very fast. They don't move very far. If he's bedded too far, he's not going to make it there till last light. So everything's got to line up to, to get that shot. Yeah. What was that date window that you said for him again? Uh, last year, he started daylighting in there around the 21st, 22nd of September, and he was good up through about the 10th or 12th, but I, I've not gone through the rest of October. My okay. suspicion is I'm going to see more daylights of him there the last week of October. Okay. And so in that case, when you've got the right calendar date, you're just, you're not going to go after him unless you have the right calendar date plus the right weather plus the right, um, what was the other one? You said the moon maybe? Um, or pressure. Yeah, which I've got a great moon coming up here. I, I love the two weeks in and around the full moon, yeah. the week prior and the week after. Like, we just see a lot more daylight activity during that period. So, um, I've got a good access into it. We'll see if uh, we'll see if he shows up. So, but I don't have the weather. Looking at the weather, we were talking about that before yeah. we jumped on. It's not. It's not <laughs> great. No, you know, it's just not great. No, it's not. So I've got a dilemma. That sounds similar to you. My my number one buck I'm hunting in Michigan is a five and a half year old. And so I'm looking at thinking about his annual pattern. And we did a whole podcast last year about patterning deer and a lot of a lot of stuff on the annual pattern thing. Um, so I think we talked about this a little bit, but I just want some clarity with you on the specifics here. When you've got an annual pattern that you're trying to figure out, but you also have the changing crop rotation. So in this case, I've got a five-year-old, and this year it's a corn year in the area that he lives in. So it's a corn year this year as a five-year-old. As a four-year-old, though, beans. So the last time I had a corn year was him as a three-year-old. And so as we just talked about, like three-year-olds are almost a different species than a five-year-old. Mm-hmm. And so I'm sitting here debating, like, do I even put any value into these pictures and sightings that I had when he was a crazy three-year-old, even though that was also the last time I had the same food and, and habitat? How do you how do you weigh that? I think you still do because it's still the same deer and just know it's not going to happen as frequently, right? So if you look at everything he did as an age three and a half, he might only do that 20% of the time when he's five and a half just because he's not moving as far as 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 often. Yeah. So I think you still have to. You got to look at it. And the other thing you can do is look at other mature deer in that area that same year and see how uh, they acted. That's something else I do a lot is not just a particular deer, but mature deer in general. Like when did they daylight when it was in corn? Uh, when was the corn cuts? Also a, a big, big different differentiator. Um, sometimes wet weather can delay cornfields coming out, which increases his bedroom, which makes him very, very tricky to run into. Hopefully the, they'll get it out of there. And, and, Another thing I've noticed, you know, the, the farming equipment is, is so much more um, effective and there's not a lot of residue left anymore. So that that makes it very challenging when those fields are cleaned up. I don't know. Uh, you know, your, your best farmer in your area is the guy that's got the older combine yes. that leaves a lot of <laughs> a lot of corn on the field. So you got you kind of have to know your farmer and their equipment, you know, in terms of what you could expect in terms of residue on a field. That's so, true. And and um, and then the worst nightmare is the farmer that comes and chisel plows immediately after harvesting. <laughs> absolutely. Ugh. But another farming practice I'm seeing get more and more um, 
steam is the uh, presence of cover crops mm, yeah. right after they right after they harvest. And all of a sudden, we went from no green fields throughout the Midwest to giant green fields. Some of them are brassica, some of them are rye, but there's a lot of folks working with sustainable cover crops. And I think it's wonderful for the environment and conservation yeah. and everything of the soil, but it does change the game for us deer hunters. You know, so you have to be mindful of that too. Is your guy one of those guys that puts a cover crop on as soon as he, as soon as he, um, you know, if he's a no-till guy, he may very well cover crop it. And then that's really tricky when you got a giant green field, that makes it tough. Yeah. Really tough. Yeah. That, uh, that is, I've yet to have, I had one year where a neighboring farmer did that. Um, but it hasn't happened in recent years. Um, so you talked about, and a lot of folks talk about one of the key consistencies with those extra mature deer being that their core area shrinks. And that's something I want to dive into with you. But before we dive into like the obvious one, are there any other consistencies with those, you know, six, seven, eight-year-old bucks or five, six, seven-year-old bucks that you've seen? Is there any trend that you've noticed with that age class deer as far as like a, a generality when it comes to behavior shifts or anything um, outside of the core area shrinking? Yes, October and December are the two best months to kill them for sure. Uh, you and and I say that because that's typically when they're alone. When they get doed up, man, are they tough to kill. I specifically love the first twelve days of October and then the last five or six days of October. Mm. Uh, the first one is a phase we call uh, greener pastures. The last one is something we call prelock. Prelock to me is the best window on of all 13 to kill a mature deer that 25th 26th 27th 28th 29th 30th 31st with the right weather the right food source they'll have to be going to what's that I, that was just me uh, shouting in joy for that time of year <laughs> yeah 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 it, it comes and goes too quickly but boy that is the window to me then again in december with rough weather that's a really good window as well but for the for the purposes of this because you don't know what's going to happen. Is he going to get killed by another hunter? You can't depend on December, right? Is he going to Is he going to be there? Is he still going to be alive? Or are you going to have the weather? Like October is the time to kill those deer. Get them before they get with that first doe. Because once they lock down, they will almost always lock down before any other buck in the herd because nobody's messing with them. You know, you get a five, six, seven-year-old deer, he's pushing everybody around. And if you just watch him, most of them just look at him and walk the other way. They know better than to deal with him because he is, he's a handful. He's big-bodied. He's, uh, he's ready to, to rumble. And he's going to get the first girlfriend at the dance. To me, that window is 25th through 31st of October. We call it pre-lock because they're not necessarily locking down with a doe that's in estrus, but I think they have a way of identifying the first doe that's going to come in estrus and they'll follow her out to the food plot and just stand there and stare at her um, like a high schooler in the hall looking at a pretty girl, you know? I mean, they they just, that's a, that's a weakness for them that last week of October, particularly the 30th and 31st of, of October. But anytime in there on a food source where there's a pile of does, they could be there. That's a really good window for them. So if you, Mark, had a regular day job, and you didn't get to hunt every day whenever you wanted to, and you were after an old, old buck like this, would you take that last week of October as your vacation instead of one of those first two weeks in November during which a lot of other guys do take their time? For me, if it's a deer that I'm on that's five or six and I want to kill him, absolutely. Yeah. I would. 
Okay, so another thing you mentioned. You mentioned how they're... If, if, I, if I have a confidence level of what I think he's going to be doing, right? Yeah. If I have a history with him and go, he daylights in here that week, yeah, then I'm going to take that week because that's a really good window to kill him. Yeah. Okay. These old, old bucks getting on that first doe. I, I've heard a few folks talk about seeing repeats of the same doe family group coming in heat first year after year. Like there might be a genetic thing where like, man, like this old nanny doe always seems to be one of the first ones to come into heat in a given little region. Let's say there's like a hundred acre property and this doe family group always hangs out in the Northeast corner. And if you're paying attention, noticing that that happens, um, have you ever seen anything like that? And have you ever taken advantage of that? Given what we just learned there about those old bucks getting on that first one. I have seen it and I 100% agree with it, but I think that's a very challenging thing to bank on and depend on, you know? Um, but I have seen it. So I think there's, there's truth to it. I think there's, and they're generally old and large. That's the thing I've noticed Like when they get on a doe early and stick with her, they're generally quite mature. They look like they're four or five or six, you know? So does he know her possibly does he just, uh, sense that she might be the first one to come into heat. To me, it's more about that than anything. Yeah. So on the line of the rut, then, um, are there any other tendencies when it comes to how these old bucks participate in the rut? So, so you mentioned they're getting started early. Um, have you seen anything as far as anything unique with that six or seven year old buck when it comes to how long or short a time period they stay with a doe or how they jump from doe to doe or one thing I've heard is that lots of times they're more active at the end of the rut. Um, have you ever, have you seen anything like that or anything else? Absolutely. I think that in general terms, they're going to pre-lock and then kind of not move a whole heck of a lot till about the, I like the eighth, ninth, seventh, eighth, ninth, 10th, 11, that, that little window right there, which is the tail end of the seeking phase. We call it the tail end of buck parade and the very start of, um, lockdown, mm-hmm. that phase is quite good for daylight activity. I, I love that period right there. Seven through 11, seven come 11, if you will. Okay. Um, that's quite good here in the Midwest. And then it just depends what your population dynamic is. And all of this depends a little bit on population dynamic. If your buck to doe is severely out of whack, you can't expect to see a lot of daylight activity by bucks in general because they're going to lock down during di- nighttime, right? Most of their movement occurs at night. Just watch your pictures. So to expect to see a lot of daylight activity, if you've got a call it five does to one buck or seven does to one buck, it's probably not going to happen. Uh, however, if you're a little closer to their natural ratio, which is one to one, we like to keep everything at, you know, realistically, we hope to have it at a two or three to one, two or three does to one buck. If you're in that range, you can expect to see them free up occasionally through the rut, but it's it's so much more challenging because the activity could have been at noon. It could have been at, at two o'clock. You know, if, if October, you could pretty much bank on the fact that it's that first hour, last hour and a half, two hours. So it's, it's more of an expectation. Yeah. And I've talked about this before. When you get into the rut, the, the, Odds of seeing one could happen at any time of the day. So you're kind of hoping, right? You're hoping he frees up. You're mm-hmm. hoping he comes by. So it's it's hope versus expectation. And that's challenging mentally. It's challenging physically because you've got to sit there much longer. But if you got one week off and you want the, the greatest odds of a deer to be on their feet, 
you know, it's it's probably during the rut because more deer covering more ground. Yeah. But if you're honed in on a particular buck on a spot, that's why I like that late October. But it's only because I've got a sure enough history with him and a, and a plan and a prediction. But, you know, if, if you don't have that, that's that's difficult to to expect success. Speaking of hopes and expectations, um, you know, a lot of us look at that rut window is that chance for the midday movement, right? There's that hope and the, the belief that, yeah, there's more midday activity. Um, and you know, I've seen if, that if the weather's right, yeah, if the weather's right. So I've seen that with, you know, year and a half old, two and a half year olds, three and a half year olds. I've seen all the way up to the old ones, but when it comes to those like five, six, seven year old bucks, is that, is that as good of a window for them as it is for, you know, just general buck movement? I mean, is there anything unique for that age when it comes to midday? I think, I think it's a, I think it's a better window. If you ever watch closely and watch it consistently through the years, they're almost the last one to get on their feet of a morning. When you get into, you know, we're out of October and we're out of this food pattern stuff and we're actually dough is dough is what they're keyed in on. Like, 9 30 10 o'clock everything else is bedded haven't seen a deer in 30 minutes like should i climb down Uh uh-uh, because he's about to get up he's going to go check every doe trail he's going to check what just occurred that morning trying to find that deer he's he's wise he's smart like a blood tracking dog you take a dog that's a blood trailer that's seven eight nine years old man they know how to find those those deer that are wounded because they've been there and they almost can think like the deer that buck can think like that doe or like the rest of those bucks, he waits till the midday to go do his movement. That nine o'clock through eleven o'clock, and then again from about one thirty to three thirty or four, those are the two windows that I really key in on. Once you get into November, I mean that's that's when you're going to catch him more often than not. Yeah. So can can you continue that what you just did there as far as uh, mapping out like the day of a let's say a six year old buck. What do you imagine that buck's 24-hour day looking like at that age during that rut time period? Can you walk me through, can I continue what you were doing right there? Well, if he's alone, he's going to do exactly, not exactly, but there's a high likelihood he could do what I'm talking about. And again, all this depends on weather. If it's a warm day, you can crush that back. It's only going to happen the first hour or two and the last hour or two. However, if it's a beautiful high-pressure day, and the moon's overhead, a lot of things are lining up. You could see that deer at any time during the day. You could see him the first hour or two coming off of bed, and he's going to bed down for a while. And then I, I see that 9 to 11.30 very consistently each year, and then 1.30 through about 3.30, 4 o'clock. I specifically love 3 p.m. Central Time during during the during that period. And I specifically love about 9, 10 o'clock during that period. Um, they just get on their feet and they, they go walk. That's provided you got the right weather. You're hoping for, you know, highs in the fifties, lows in the thirties and optimal conditions and pressure over 30.1 better sit in your stand. Don't, don't get down. Yeah. And that buck he's, I'm, I'm just, you know, the assumption would be that buck is just moving as efficiently as he can traveling downwind side of every doe bedding area he knows of through that zone. Yeah. 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 It's they, their, their home cores expand. He's going to move around more inside the bedroom than he has food, although you could see him on food. You could see him just about anywhere, but a lot of that occurs in cover. That's the one thing I didn't you know, preface that statement with. You see a lot of that stuff happening in the bedroom, and that's, that's when you, know, you jump into those magical trees and those magical spots because every buck's doing the same thing, or a lot of them are. So uh, it's, it's a fun time of the year, but it's, just, it's, it's more challenging trying to kill a specific buck 
than October or December, in my opinion. Yeah. Um, so let's go back to the first thing that you mentioned at the very top when it comes to these old deer, which is that their core area does usually shrink. Outside of the rut, they shrink down. Um, I think even during the rut, it shrinks a little bit. Okay. I do. And, and I think I have this theory that when they're younger, they're making bigger loops and checking a lot more stuff out. And I think through life, they go, I like this, 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 and this. Yeah. You know, here's where I have the most security. I've run into the least amount of pressure. I've found the most does. My water's here. My cover's here. My escape route's here. Like, I think they learn those things through life and they hone down in, this is the house I want, right? Yeah. You know, it's like checking out a multitude of neighborhoods and going, this is the neighborhood I want to live in. I think that's what happens. I think that's why it shrinks. They're learning it, imprinting it as they're younger. And then when they're older, they know where to go. Uh, that's just my theory. I don't know if there's any truth to that or not, but I think that's why that home core gets a little bit smaller and there's less less activity within the home core because I think they're still trying to learn it when they're younger. That makes sense. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time, Seafoam Motor Treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that Seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. And it's really simple. When you pour it into your gas tank, Seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can into your gas tank and let it do its job. Now, you probably know someone who's used a can of Seafoam to get their truck or boat going again. Because people everywhere rely on it to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. So, help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. I know there is the answer to this question I'm about to ask you is very, very situational dependent. It's going to depend on region and habitat type and all that kind of stuff. But just given what you've seen in your area, if you had to like put a number on the average core area size that you see this old, old buck shrink into, are you seeing like, ah, oh, it's usually like a square mile or is it usually like a hundred acres? Or is it, if you had to give me some kind of average, what do you think that would be? A few hundred acres. Okay. And that's if I had to, yeah. And that's but shrinking. They're going to loop outside of that. It's not like there's a wall around that thing because there's not. Any doe could have him three miles away, yeah. you know, at any second. But in general, it's a few hundred acres, you know, to, to me. Um, but that could expand out to two or three square miles, depending on the buck's personality or his age. But uh, it's, I think it just gets a little bit smaller. Okay. That makes sense. What kinds of places, what kinds of habitat do you see frequently becoming those oldest buck, <clears throat> oldest buck homes, right? As they've, you mentioned, they're picking out the things they like the most. Can you point to some of the characteristics of the spots that these old bucks end up settling in on? That much I can't because they, it has varied so much yeah. over the past 35 years. I've seen them live out in a giant CRP field their whole life get up, go to food, go back. I've seen them in the thickest of timbers. Um, to me, it's it's very variable, and that's a head-scratcher to me why one buck prefers 
one terrain and another buck prefers another terrain, I can only assume it's because of other home ranges interfering. And therefore this guy's saying, I'm staying here and I'm staying there. And, and they kind of stay away from each other and they camp out in their little area. As long as there's, you know, ample food cover water, they're pretty adaptable. They can live just about anywhere, uh, but they got to have does there as well. Uh, I've also seen different personalities with bucks through the years. I've seen bucks that I swear didn't leave 80 acres or 100 acres <laughs> and didn't really participate in the rut very much. Like I've seen bucks that I felt like only got with one or two does. And I, I, I don't think that's uncommon at all to where when they're younger, they're covering more ground because they're they're younger and they'll get with more does because their odds of finding a hot doe increase. When they get old and get back to that old dog in the porch, doesn't get up, doesn't walk around, doesn't eat as much when he's older. I think that's that older buck, and I just don't think he's quite as active during the rut as he was when he's younger. Somewhere in that curve, they go from breeding being the you know primary uh, reason for their existence to just trying to live and stay alive. And and I think somewhere in that curve is that six and a half year old buck that again he's the ghost year, and by the time they're seven or eight, they're very much worried about just living. Uh, they're going to still participate in the rut, but it, it, you know, he may not move during that severe cold weather. Whereas that four-year-old's running around going crazy, and that guy's laying in his bed till it gets a little bit nicer for him to walk around. But personality's different, and you'll learn that as you hunt. It not every deer is the same, and you, you can never take, you can never say always or never with white-tailed deer. All of these things I'm talking about are general terms but it does vary quite a bit based on the deer's personality and the terrain you're hunting it in. But in answer to your original question, there, there's no, there's no box for that, that description of, of where they're going to live. Yeah. Okay. So, so you make, you make a good point, which is any buck that's gotten to this age starts to show some kind of unique personality traits. Right. And, and it seems like one of the tricks to successfully killing a deer like that is to be able to uncover what is that unique personality. Can you think of a buck or two over your years that stands out to you as having like a unique personality trait or, or behavioral pattern that you were able to uncover and then use that to your hunting advantage? Um, is, is there an example like that a story you could tell about how you figure out what this old buck's unique personality thing was, how you discovered it, and then how that led to your hunts, whether you ended up killing the buck or not? Yeah, I, I think back to a buck that um, Todd Smith. I, did you ever meet Todd? He was the editor of Outdoor Life for you know. Years. I don't think I did. And such a fine gentleman, and um, he came in and hunted with me, and we got to be really close friends. And he whitetail hunted, but I, I don't think he was um, like he's going to go, you know, the entire season like you're going to do, you know. But he did whitetail hunt, and he loved it. And he drew a, a late season Iowa tag with me. And, and there was this one buck on, on my farm that I swear lived on this 80 acre portion of the farm because I had cameras everywhere like usual. And I never got him anywhere else other than this 80 acre parcel. And this 80 acre parcel was the thickest, nastiest, most secure place on the farm. The access into it was tough for us as hunters. And the only time I'd get him during the uh, daylight pictures was of a morning in the month of December. So very unique deer. Like he was dark, 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 October, November. But in December, I'd caught this one weakness. I kept catching him going back to bed into this 80 acres off this one um, 
particular rich field of food that I had planted. And Todd came in and I told him about a variety of different places we could hunt and this buck and that buck. And I told him my story about this deer, about how unique he was. And I was planning on just hunting afternoons like we normally do in December. And he goes, why don't we go after that buck? And, and probably part of the reason I didn't see much is because I don't hunt a lot of mornings, especially in December. And um, I said, sure, we can. You know, I think here's what we need to do. We need this wind, blah, blah, blah. And we went in there two or three mornings because we had the right conditions. And sure enough, Todd killed this giant eight point. He was probably just shy of 170. And I, I think Whoa. he was a six and a half year old buck, maybe seven and a half year old buck. But he was a he was an absolute toad. And the thing I noticed about him, he was absolutely perfect. There wasn't a scar on that deer's body. His ears were perfect. His eyes were perfect. And I really believe he was just one of those deer that lived his life as a bachelor. I think when he bred does, they came to him. He wasn't going to them. And he was safe there. And uh, he lived a long, happy life until, until Todd put an end to it that morning. That was one of the most unique deer we ever hunted and succeeded on. And uh, he taught me a lot. You know, he taught me that these deer are different. They have different personalities. And when I speak of that, I always think back to that deer because he, he definitely taught me deer are not created equal. They're all their own own person or their own animal. Yeah. So, so what about the fork buck? I know that was, that was one that, that seemed to stand out too. Um, and I, I can't remember if we talked about this one last crazy. year or not, but yeah, that, that just seems like such a crazy example. And that is probably illustrative to, to us and to folks on how you go about trying to figure out a buck like that, that just kind of bucks the trend, the usual generalities. Can you talk about that a little I, bit? I, I literally lost years off my life over that deer that that season because i really hadn't hunted him a lot but i had a tremendous trail picture history of him because he was a home boy and this farm was 417 acres and he was on there a lot but he was all over it i always said he was the buck that was everywhere the buck that was nowhere like we couldn't run into that deer to save our behinds and we finally killed him december the 20th on a green field with a bow uh, down in a bottom field where I had never gotten this picture. And I mean, it just literally, I, I had gotten it there a few times, not many, but I literally just got lucky to kill that deer. And I kind of started hunting him. Like I always hunted him the way I always hunt, which was, I think he's going to be here. I think he's going to be here. I think he's going to be here. I finally started going where I didn't think he'd be. And that's when I killed the deer. Hmm. Like I literally had to reverse my, um, thinking and everything I knew it just like broke all the codes and uh that was he was a tough deer to kill I mean he he was just literally walking I believe I killed him when he was eight and a half and again on food in December there's a weakness uh but I killed him where I didn't think he'd be that night and sure enough he, he was one of those walkers all night all day I'd catch a picture of him at at you know 6 p.m on a greenfield and then by 10 p.m he'd be two miles north on a different camera it was just bizarre he was really a tough deer to run into every year we hunted him so many times and never saw him i think dustin and wade saw him once or twice i think i'd saw him twice before i killed him and he was eight and a half years old if that, if that explains how difficult he was yeah. but he, he also taught me you know compare that story to todd's deer both six and a half or older, one never moved and was literally clean and perfect and beautiful. 
and the fork buck, every single thing in him was ripped and scarred and ears. And, you know, the, the more they walk, the more they're going to encounter other deer and get into tussles. Right. And uh, we always joked because his body was so large. We said, what if he didn't walk as much as he did? I swear he'd <laughs> had 300 inches of antler on his on his head. Uh, you know, because I think he wore yeah. himself to a frazzle every year. Um, but he was, he was a cool deer and, and I felt blessed to have the opportunity to hunt him and then eventually kill him. Yeah. So was the insight, like the personality insight with him that ended up leading to you killing him? I, I know you said you got lucky, but is the insight there, the fact that you couldn't predict where he was going to be cause he was always moving. So rather than chasing yeah. pictures, just like volume hunt a spot and eventually he'll come through there. Was that it? I volume hunted the same spot for days throughout, like. 19 or 20 days i went to the same stand never saw him and i was like i'm so sick of this you know i, I was just I was like i'm burning this spot out and i finally started I, I was like i'm gonna do what he's doing and just bounce around now because i tried the same spot over and over and over and it didn't you would think you know it's counterintuitive yeah you would think that would work right if you just stuck to the same place be the camera he's eventually going to walk by he never did and i started bouncing around and going to places where i didn't think he'd be and that's where i killed him Wow. So it, 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 call it lucky or call it, you know, call it, try, call it, uh, being open to try something different that I yeah. had never done in my life. And I finally killed, killed that old booger. He was, he was a tough, tough booger. Do you feel like with a deer like that, that moves so much that I'm sure you must've been thinking about like, God, I'm, I'm probably burning this, these spots out. I'm putting pressure on this deer. Am I educating this deer? But with a mover like that, do you worry about that less just because he's it's so unlikely that he's going to come through an area that, you know, maybe I worry about it. I worry about it more because he's more likely to catch your scent trail or catch you. Okay. You know, those deer that don't move very much sit in that 80 acre spot, you know, or 100 acres. They're not nearly as likely to catch your scent or catch your track or catch your truck, that type of stuff. Okay. They're not nearly as So uh, another question that I have related to our impact on deer and the pressure we put on them. Um, jumping back to the general trend with really old deer and the general trend being that their core area shrinks, they figure out the neighborhood they like, they find the house they like in their neighborhood. They don't, they just want to sit on their couch cause they're safe there. They're happy there. They've got everything they need, right? Once they get to that point, they've got to figure it out. So I've always wondered when you've got a deer like that in that set way of life, does he react more to pressure or less to pressure? You know, is it like he's shocked when the robber shows up in the house and that gets him out? Or is he like, no, this is usually safe. I'm going to stick with it for a while. I think he react, reacts less to pressure and he's going to stick with it and he's not going to move, leave his bed yeah. unless he is eminently forced to leave that bed. Yeah. That's the one thing I've noticed about big mature deer. They are very unlikely to get up out of their bed unless you walk over their head or something. I mean, it's, it's tough to get them up out of their bed. And it, and that goes to a point, and everybody's going to be able to relate to this. One thing that I no longer pay attention to are other deer that catch my scent and blow. Hmm. You know, because your your intuition is, I just ruined my whole hunt. I'm not going to see see this deer. I don't think those deer get out of their bed for those blowing does no more than you or I would. You know, if your your kid was crying, you know, crying wolf. You know, you figure it out. And those does with those fawns will blow so easily and so frequently at everything. Skunk, bobcat at 300 yards, a coyote. 
he gets used to hearing that stuff. And, and when they're uh-huh. blowing at you, I don't think it means that much. And there was a time where I'd climb down and be like, I got to go get to another spot. Yeah. I don't do that anymore. And I, in fact, I've seen them get up and investigate what the source of the problem was, huh. especially during the rut. A blowing dose sometimes is your ally. So that that's a, a, I don't call it a tip or something that I no longer pay attention to when I get blown up. And I just go back to hunting and I just assume he's still bedded right here. If I think he's bedded there and I'm trying to kill him, I just assume he didn't leave his bed. I think they can run over him and he probably wouldn't follow him out. He's very likely to still be in his bed. So that, Now, it, it may delay when he gets up or he may get up out of curiosity to go see. It may affect his movement, but I don't think it's going to get him up and make him run two miles. He's much more secure staying where he's at. Than he is on his feet running around going, what else am I going to run into? Yeah. Okay. So that, that raises some interesting questions though, when it comes to like choosing a stand location or choosing how aggressive you want to be. Like I can think of a lot of places that I would love to hunt tight to a buck's bedding area like this, like we're talking about, but it's in a high deer density area. And I just know like, man, if I get in there, I, I can, I think I can beat the buck's nose. Like, I think I know how to set up what he'll do, but there's gonna be so many dang does and fawns that do crazy things that eventually one of them is going to win me. And so because of that, I don't even go in there. Um, should I, you know, should I consider being more aggressive and just letting the does blow at me because I can get away with a little more than I'm assuming. So to me, then I'm going to pick weather condition before I sneak into a spot like that relevant or time of year. I'm going to be more likely to try those types of spots during the rut when they're covering more ground. And when there's a lot of different chaos out there in their world, or on a rain event to where I feel like I can safely get in there. If it's raining hard, they're, they're not very likely to react to you in a rain event or a heavy windstorm. Both of those things will help cover you going into a particular spot. And by heavy wind, I'm talking, you know, 15 to 25 mile an hour. You can get by with a lot on a windy day in terms of access. You can get by with a lot on a rainy day on, in terms of access. You can get by with a lot on a on a, um, you know, November rut day in terms of access. So it it really comes down to that for me. Now, if it's a calm, pretty morning and I know I'm going to be running through deer, I'm probably not going to go. So I I wait for the right conditions. So let's say we're set up on a food plot that's tight to a bedding. To that end, I use those same conditions to go hang a stand or to put a camera that or go, change batteries out in a camera or something like that. I, I use that wind and that rain to my advantage all the time. I wait for those events to go get something done that I need to do when I just will not intrude otherwise. Another thing in terms of intrusion, a tractor at night going in or going out will almost never bother those deer. We've noticed that through the years. Like if you can get there, you know, if you've got to go check a camera or, or go move a blind or move a stand, those types of things. Nighttime's a great time to do it. They're just not nearly as uh, likely to react to you. Yeah. So do you, have you seen, you know, back to the blowing doe thing, I've always felt like there's the cascading effect. And like, if they're, if I'm, if I'm hunting a food source and my wind is kind of blowing out into the food source and I've always thought, man, if a, if a doe family group or a doe wins me out in the food, um, and she runs back in there, that buck will never make it here because he'll see that as an alarm and he's just not going to come all the way out in daylight if that happens even once. Um, so just to clarify what you're saying, are you, are you saying that maybe I'm worrying a little too much on that even? I think you could be because it, 
if you watch them, if you've seen a doe react to a coyote or a bobcat, and they're not catching you, yeah. right? I mean, that's their natural uh, response is to snort and get their fawns out of there or get other does out of there. Um, so I, I don't pay much attention to it anymore. I stick in there and I've, I've seen, like I said, deer come and investigate it. Go, what was yeah. that? Depending on the time of the year, I've had other nights where I never see another deer enter the field. So it probably did affect it, but more often than not, I don't think it's moving him out of his bed. It may affect when he moves or how he moves, but I don't think he ran out of the area. That's my, that's my gut. I think he stayed right wherever he was when that bus started. Yeah. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time, Seafoam Motor Treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that Seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. And it's really simple. When you pour it into your gas tank, Seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can in your gas tank and let it do its job. Now, you probably know someone who's used a can of Seafoam to get their truck or boat going again. Because people everywhere rely on it to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. So, help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. Let's continue on this line of of kind of... uh you know, buck behavior when they're like moving from bed to feed. Um, I know we talked a little bit about where they want to live. We talked about um, how they're going to participate in the rut and when they're going to be more daylight or not. But what about just any trends you've seen with like how they actually move across the landscape? Um, When you get to that like six, seven year old buck, is it always going to be taking the area with the thickest, safest route to get to where he wants to go? Or at some point, do they get even lazier than usual? Like I know they're creatures of, they, they prefer the path of least resistance, but does a six-year-old get even more that way because he's old and doesn't want to have to squeeze through the thick cover? Any Anything you've noticed there? I think by the time they get at that age, bed is bad, safety, safety, security, security, and they're going to have a tendency to go to where they've been most secure throughout their life on that wind, on that weather, during that period of of the year and that can change from phase to phase based on leaf fall uh, based on whether he's on a hot dough or not and i think it really comes down to all right if this is his bedroom on these weather conditions this wind speed this wind direction this crop rotation how far is that from where he's feeding because he's older and he's he's almost in slow motion as compared to a year and a half or a two and a half they just don't walk very far. They don't walk very fast. They're very cautious. They're very careful. It's the old dog on the porch. They just don't They do not do the things that they did when they were younger. So it really comes down to that. And that gets back to that, that slot machine lining up. You know, where is his secure bed? Last night, I went scouting for our catcher dream hunt. And I was watching one field on this side of this, this old dirt road. And up on top of this pasture ridge, I turned around and looked. And I saw my number one target in Iowa walking through this cattle pasture, coming out of these woods and crossing over this ridge. He's 400 yards from where our food plot is. And I I went back because I I remember to myself, 
I get him daylight of a morning a lot. I almost never get him daylight of an evening. Hmm. And it hit me right then. I'm like, he's bedding in that little patch of woods right there. It's the same way I killed danger. Like I, I lost that deer and then I refound him with my trail cameras. And then I just went into that, that bedroom and I killed him right there where he was coming. Cause I found out where that, that security cover was for that time of the year. And I think if you can do that, but in both of those cases, it took cameras, or in this case, it took took me luckily looking over my shoulder. He's, you know, 500 yards away from me, and I saw him walking the ridge. I threw my glasses on him, and I knew who it was. It's a buck. Uh, I call the tumor buck, and I was like, aha, he's bedded in what I call the pretty woods. And I'm talking the least secure cover you've ever seen. Huh. I'm talking you can see 300 yards to these woods, so maybe for him it's the most secure and he went across the ridge, he went down into the bottom, and sure enough, I got a trail picture of him at like 9 o'clock last night down in that in that food plot, and I'm like, I got to change my strategy on this guy. I either, gotta, I either have to start hunting the plot in the morning, or I'm, chances are I'm going to go into those pretty woods and, and hang a stand set to catch him coming back. To catch him coming back in the, oh, morning. the morning. Yeah, so try, mm-hmm. so try to kill him in the morning. And will you try to do that early? I, mean, I know you usually don't hunt early mornings. I'll try to- I'll try to do it in October. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, for sure. I killed danger of a morning, October 21st. Yeah. So I will, when the opportunity suggests I should, certainly I'll, I'll change my tactics quickly, but I've just had more luck in the evenings at food. But if it's a certain deer and that's your target and he's not killable down there at that food source, then you got to change up. And I, I think tumor bucks going to, going to cause me to change up. I've got a great morning set along his path, but I don't think I've ever gotten a picture of him at that morning set. And I'm like, I'm off a ridge or two on this deer. And when I, when I saw where he entered and where I saw where he came out of, you can bet I'm going to scout him a little bit more. I'm going to put some cameras up there. And if I can catch him on that pattern, he'll, he'll be in trouble. How old is this deer? Tumor is seven and a half. Wow. And so when you say you're going to do some scouting, you're going to hang the set, you're going to hang some cameras to figure them out. This is a seven-year-old deer. He's bedding in the open timber. That sounds like very scary to me about trying to go in there and doing anything in this area where he's like going to know I'm there. So are you going in on the tractor? Are you getting on the ATV? Could you walk me through how you're going to do those two, three things? Well, there's a pasture that he's crossing, so that'll be easy, right? I can put a bunch of cameras on that pasture and catch him. But the trick is going to be, there haven't been cattle in there all summer. This is a, a, I don't own this particular farm. It's a lease. When they turn those cattle in there, it's going to change everything anyway. Right. And then he, he may change his bed. So cattle could actually be my friend in this case, believe it or not. I sat there last night thinking, you know what? When they turn cattle in there, it's going to force him into this other block of timber because it's fenced out. Whereas the one he came out of last night is open to the cattle. That's mm-hmm. why it's so pretty. Yep. Um, but he may switch over to the other block. So that comes into play. But as long as the cattle aren't in there, I could put, I can get to that pasture easy on the right winds and put cameras up there and see if I can figure out where he's crossing and where he's coming out of those pretty woods. And if I can do that, I'll, I'll catch him coming back in there. But if I go hang the stand, I'll wait till the middle of the night to go do it. I do a lot of that in the middle of the night. I just think you're safer. If you're trying to go into their bedroom, why do it when they're in there? Do it yeah. when they're not in there. You've got to take the right safety precautions, but take a rainy night, get in there. You know, you're not going to affect anything. Yeah. Well, I've got a, uh, one of our one of our editors, Carson Brandt, is on an absolute mega giant, big as they get deer that he has the sheds to the last two seasons, and he did not have permission to hunt this spot. 
Now he gained permission this year. And this deer looks 210 to 230 to me. I mean, Ooh. big frame, big giant deer. I could be Jeez. off, but the gagger. I mean, it's just unbelievable. And he asked me to come look at the spot. So we went around the whole, and it's 80 acres that he has permission on, but the deer's in there quite a bit. And he goes, man, I just don't want to go in there and bump him out. I said, wait till night. You know, he wanted a Northwest win. I said, he waited probably six, oh no, probably about five weeks for a heavy rainstorm, Northwest wind, middle of the night, hung four sets, 10 cell cams, and now he's, he's set up to hunt that deer. So wow. I think you can get by with a little bit more at night than you can during the day. Use the heavy rain. You got to be safe. Got to be careful. Uh, but it washes away your sins. That's what I say. Rainstorms wash away your sins. It's a little bit tougher for them to catch your scent and uh, just, just makes a lot more sense. So you just got to, you got to use what they do in your favor, right? Um, they're probably going to be out of their bedroom at night, wind, rain, those types of weather events, use them to your advantage. A lot of people go, Oh, it's windy. I'm not going or it's rainy. Well, maybe you don't want to go hunting, but can you go get something done? And, um, you know, don't be afraid to try and do something at night. Just take the safety precautions to, before you go do it, take a friend, do the right things, make sure you're tied off at all times. If you're hanging a stand, be very careful. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I want to rewind just a little bit to what we were talking about just before this example and that being, you know, trying to figure out these personalities. And one of the things that I've always assumed, but I'm curious if your experiences back this up, has been um, as those bucks get older, am I right to assume that their annual patterns become more consistent, become tighter, like they, they have more validity? If I've seen something up to a seven-year-old buck versus like trying to figure out like a, a four-year-old's behavior based off of what he did as a two and a three-year-old, is that have any truth to it? I, I think so. But I think as bucks age, the reasons they move are fewer and fewer, yeah. which is why you have to have the exact right conditions or the right good luck or the right ability to look at the weather, look at the time of the year and try to get those slot machines lining up. Because, you you know, if you compare him when he's take a start difference, three and a half to six and a half. He's just not going to move during daylight as much at six and a half as he did at three and a half. He made daylight 20 days throughout the hunting season when he's three and a half. That might be cut to two or three when he's six and a half. That's the thing. That's why I call him a ghost. Those six-year-olds just don't move around very much during daylight. So I think you have to keep that in mind. Like if, if you're hunting these old deer, your odds of seeing him are much more diminished than when he was three or four. It's just not nearly as likely unless other things occur. You know, you, you might have a, a hunter on a neighboring property bump him. He might have an injury and he's going to food every night and that makes him a little more susceptible. I've seen that happen. I killed a deer last year that had a really bad leg injury and I had pictures of him all summer and then all of a sudden he just vanished. And then I started getting him again in late November out of nowhere. And he was a homeboy the year before on this farm. And he's got this swollen leg and a shoulder that's kind of caved in, like something neurologically happened to him. Like the meat wasn't even on the bone. Like, wow. I don't know what happened to that deer, but I swear he sat out October and, and most of November and didn't, didn't really participate. And then all of a sudden, late November, he starts daylighting on this food plot. He, he was hobbling. He could run. But when he walked, he had a really bad limp. 
And we went in there and we killed that deer. And I, I know that injury just sidelined him throughout the rut. So you do get those unique occurrences where health can either increase your chances or decrease your chances. I've seen deer that sustain an injury from another buck that boom, they're off the shelf. They're going to sideline. They're going to sit in their bed and not move. They're going to heal up. Uh, or say you make an errant shot, you shoulder shoot one. If it's in the wrong place, he starts to feel really bad. He could be out of rotation for three or four weeks. You go, Oh, did I kill that deer? And then all of a sudden he pops back up in December. So there are unique occurrences that, like I said, could increase how much he moves or decrease, decrease how much he moves. So you keep that in mind, but all things being equal, they're not going to move a lot when they're five and six years old. You, you have to have the right window of opportunity that late October, sometime during the run on a hot doe, sometime during December, during really rough weather, if you can find where he's feeding, you know, they're just unique opportunities and they're, they're not very frequent. So continuing down the line with like trying to uncover not just the pattern, but the personality. I always run my cameras on photo mode because I've always just worried about batteries and I don't want to have to go checking batteries and I don't want to go pulling cameras and, and I don't have solar panels on my cells. I probably should do that. But so I've always been worried about that. Yeah. So solar panels, they're game changers, game changers. So, so that answers part of my question, but I've wondered as I've started having opportunities to have older deer around more and more often. I've wondered more and more, like, am I missing out on some really important little pieces of intel I could have if I were to run these on video more often? When you're targeting these older deer, is that important to get the videos or, or not so much? I don't think it is, but I'm old school. Perhaps it is, you know, but I'm running a lot of cameras, so I don't want to take the time. I really don't have the time to do it, right? Yeah. So um, I'm old school. I'm one picture every 15 seconds in most situations, you know, on a scrape, I'm a picture every 15 seconds. I love okay. that setting. Seems like a good pace. Don't miss a lot. If it's, I really want to get Intel, I'm picture no delay, you know, which is pretty close to video anyway. Yeah. So that's another opportunity. It's a little easier to go through those as opposed to that video clip. If it's 15 seconds long and all you catch is his butt, you know, and then you're watching 15 seconds. You know, I, I, I don't like video myself um, just because it's such a time suck. I mean, it's it takes a lot of time to review all those videos. I mean, they're, that's painstaking. So I like to fly through that car and watch it and, and go. But picture picture no delay is going to get you really close to that video effect anyway. Yeah, that's a good point. What about how these old bucks react to cameras do you find that six seven year old buck more camera shy more apt to be bothered by a camera anything like that or no i think that's personality driven too like i've had certain bucks that they see a camera they'll go walk up to it every single time and they're very you know it's like they're a a camera hog you know and then other bucks you see them kind of shine away from it so is it the ir i use ir you kind of know you know less glow and i think that's dependent upon the buck and and each personality is different i'm sure the more pressure the more cameras could probably dissuade them from walking in front of one i I will say that if if it's already a place that they're uncomfortable walking through like a gate gap i have a tendency not to monitor gate gaps with Mm -hmm. my cameras certainly not on the gap itself because i think that could dissuade a buck because they they don't like to be pinched right they don't like really close quarters or pinch points, whether it be 
a lake that's got them up against a fence or a gate gap or a, a bunch of bales and there's only one way out. They don't like those scenarios in my experience. So I don't give them another reason to dislike that spot, especially if I'm trying to kill a deer walking through that gate gap or walking through that pitch. So I have a tendency to put my cameras a little bit more in an inventory type of situation on the outskirts as opposed to internal, if that makes sense, or on a, on a pinch point. Yeah. Interesting. I've also thought like with, with a couple places that I've hunted for like a long time, like I've got a couple places now that I've been able to hunt for 12 years, maybe more now. Um, and I've had cameras, you know, out across this property for all those years. I've started to wonder like, man, my five-year-old bucks have had these cameras in their face for years and years and years. Like, can I get away? Do I need to be less worried about it now? Cause they've seen it so much, you know? I think it's probably still personality driven, but I yeah. do think there is something to that. If they grew up with that IR flash going off and it's never harmed them, why would they be scared of it? Whereas yeah. if you move in and it's a new property and they've never seen cameras, chances are they're going to they're going to have an adverse effect to it. Yeah. That would be my gut, you know. Yeah. So, it's kind of like uh box blinds for us. We hunt a lot out of blinds and if if we have a five and a half or six and a half year old deer, well He's walked by those box blinds his whole life like it's a tree. So if we move one a little bit, we're not too we're not too afraid to move in on a buck if we have to. And and because it's counterintuitive because you think, oh, this is going to booger him. But in reality, we haven't we haven't seen that happen. Yeah, that's interesting. When it comes to these deer moving in daylight, um, we, we've we've established pretty clearly that they move less and less and less the older they get in daylight. Usually. Um, We've had some really great conversations here on the show over the last 10 years about all the different theories you have around different factors that increase movement, which has, of course, led to deer cast, which is a heck of a tool. Um, so there's all these different variables that in, increase deer movement, stuff like weather factors, temperature, moon, wind, precip, barometric pressure, etc. Do any of those stand out as the most important for an old deer, like I realize, like all these factors might impact the whole deer herd, right? But is there anything that might be something like of all of those, this one's the most important when it comes to like the old old buck, or or the opposite? Is there anything that tends to get does moving a lot, but like when it comes to that big old guy, eh, not as much. It's temperature. They're they're big. They got that big coat on, and if I had to point my finger at one thing, it, they are very temperature sensitive. If that temperature is much above normal, particularly when you look at the falls we've had the last few years, man, it seems like we've been 10 degrees above yeah. normal for three years and it just subdues daylight activity by those deer. It just, it just, A, they're not moving very far anyway. So if you heat it up and they're not moving very far, the chances of him getting there during daylight isn't good you know, at all. So I think temp, they're very temperature sensitive. If I had to pick one thing more so than any other factor, it's, it's that warm weather. It, it pushes them. It just subdues that daylight activity. It drives me insane. I look at the forecast, you know, and it seems like I've been looking at the same forecast for three years <laughs> above normal. Um, and, and I think it just hurts overall daylight activity. Now, when you get a front, look out because they're fixing to go, you know, when they're, when they're used to that warm weather and you finally put a cold front across them, they're all getting ready to get up and go. So it does make the cold fronts even better, but man, I just, I just love norm or 10, 15 degrees below norm. That's, yeah. that's that sweet spot. Give me 10, 12, 15 degrees below normal temperature for the day. 
you're gonna have a you're gonna have a good good set. You're gonna have a good hunt. So we're hunting a deer like this. We're hunting a six year old. We know we've got these short special windows we're looking for. We find one of those short special windows. We know he's not gonna likely move real far from his bedroom because he's got a tighter core area. So we're pushing in there smartly, but you know we're we're not expecting him to travel a mile. Um, we've tried to pattern him. We have an annual history. We've looked for personality traits. We've done all of those things. And we see the buck. We see a six-year-old buck out there. Is there anything different I should be thinking about with a six-year-old out 100 yards away from me versus a three-year-old out there when it comes to calling at him, rattling at him, using a decoy, any of those aggressive things? Do these really old bucks have a tendency to react differently than those, you know, adolescents? I think they could. I think that if, if you watch a young deer, they get in the mood more often, right? Their testosterone's up and you could call him in three days in a row. That older buck better be in the right mood before you try. And he better be in the right wind position with the right route coming to you before you try. So I've said this before on your podcast, the older I get, the less I call, but the more success I have when I call because I've, I've, I choose my times to throw that dart. And if things aren't perfect in his demeanor, in his body posture, whether his belly's full or not, that's another thing with, with a deer, depending on the time of the year, if he's eating, I generally let him finish eating. If I feel like I've got enough time before I start calling to him, make sure he's already got his full and he starts to look around the rest of the field, make sure his interest level is up. I think a mistake hunters can make is trying to pull him in with a call the moment he steps onto the field if he's eating that particular day. Um, decoys can be very good. Depends how many does you're going to affect trying to get to that guy. That's the thing with decoys I, I always have. When I have bad luck, it's because does screw it up, right? You know, the bucks on the yeah. field, does come investigate it first. They blow up, and then they stand there. They come back in, sniff, run away, snort do all this different stuff and he's just standing down there watching it. So when I decoy, I like mornings when deer are going point A to point B. I don't like evenings where everything's conglomerated at the same place and you got to pass many inspections before you get, you know, to the to the eyes you're you're after because he's going to be chances are one of the later deer on the field. So uh you just got to got to choose, you got to think it through and go what is the most likelihood that I'm going to get him over here? And I, I don't call the mature bucks very often unless he's in the exact right mood. He looks at, you know, he's got a little more movement to him. He's a little more energetic. Like I said, he's not going to reach that, that type of mood very often. And if you catch him in the right mood, he will come though. Um, that's, that is the one thing I have noticed. I have seen bucks of that age when they're with a mature doe, they're a little more likely to be reactive to a call than any other time because they they will not tolerate another buck getting close to him if they are the dominant deer in that herd. But that depends how close you are to him uh, or how many other bucks around. I've seen situations where there's a mature buck tending a doe and a bunch of other bucks in the magic circle, and you can rattle and have some fun in situations like that. But if it's just a buck and a doe, snort wheeze is a really good call to try. But if they're three, three, four hundred yards away, he's not going to leave her. Chances are uh, you need to be relatively close for that to, to happen. So if I'm in that situation, I'm probably not going to call to him. I'll wait till a better time, a better chance. 
The other thing that I've noticed about a mature buck, once he's doed up, they generally don't move very far from that spot. Like you can literally dance around that spot on different wind directions for several days and you'll still see that, that pair. Yeah. Uh, they don't go very far if you find that magic circle Yeah. more often than not, you know, you know, that, that home core might went from two or 300 yards. All of a sudden I'm doed up and he stays in the same hollow for three days. You know, it's unique to find that situation, but when you do, you can stick with it and eventually get him killed just by their meandering within that small spot. And so would you get, pretty darn aggressive in that scenario when you know he's holed up in there he's doing whatever the doe does um you've got this kind of special tight 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 range are you uh pulling you know pulling all the stops depends on his mood if i if i see something i like with the right wind and the right position for him to come to me yeah i might try him you bet yeah you bet all right you we talked about the fork buck we talked about that buck with todd smith but I'm wondering to kind of, I want to touch on two quick more things to kind of wrap a bow on this whole conversation when it comes to understanding these really old deer. Is there any other deer other than those two that we kind of spent some time on that you can point to having taught you the most as far as an old buck that taught you something about old bucks? Is there one of those deer that stands out as, as having taught you the most important lesson that has now led you to be more successful trying to kill that oldest of buck. Is there a story that you can think of you could tell us and share with us what you learned from him? I think in answer to that question, and I've talked about this a lot on your show, pre-scouting a deer years in advance so that you're ready for him the year you're trying to target him. Bucktober was that deer for me. Um, I had just a few pictures of him on the outskirts of one particular draw when he was three and a half, when he was four and a half, I went up and down that draw and I put cameras all over it. I did it. In, and this was a big CRP field with, with these long finger draws. And I put cameras in, in three finger draws in a row. And I only got him during daylight in one of them. And I was like, I got you. As soon as I looked and I let him run the whole year, I make sure they were batteried up. I put them on a slow enough speed. I wanted to make sure the batteries lasted the full year. I put them out in September. I collected them in February and I got a full picture of the year. And as soon as I saw it, I was like, you're dead. I mean, I just knew it because it was a South wind spot. It was right below me. I knew where to hunt him and I I killed him that, that following year. So that pre-scouting with cameras (coughs) to learn a buck and find his home core area when you can do it, I think that's the best thing you can give yourself, but keep all the information, keep all the pictures, interpret that information, lay your game plan out in the off season so that you're ready come the following season or two seasons from now or whatever it is. That taught me a lot about a particular deer and their personality. And when you find that buck's bedroom and truly find it to where he's in there a lot during daylight, you're going to kill that deer if you're smart about how you approach it. That was probably the number one thing that I, I learned from that particular deer. That was 2000, and I had those cameras out in 2000, and well, that have been 14, and then I killed him in 15. Wow, it was that long ago. That feels like it was yesterday. Yeah, um, yeah. Interesting. I'll just I'll mention for folks listening, if they haven't heard the podcast that we did last year on patterning deer, they should definitely mm-hmm. jump back and listen to that one because that covers a lot of what you're talking about here in even more detail. Um, so just an aside there. Great, great point. 
Last question for you, Mark. If you were to be given a stone tablet and a chisel, and you were going to chisel in your three rules for hunting this super mature buck, Mark Drury's three commandments of hunting old, old bucks. What would those three commandments be that you would want to chisel into those tablets and give to anyone who says, hey, man, I'm done with three-year-olds. I'm done with four-year-olds. I want to try to kill that old grandpa buck. What are those three things you put down there, Mark? Scout more than you hunt. Um, Only go for the throat on the exact right conditions. And if you can, use cameras to scout him a year in advance. Yeah. You, you take those, those three things, which scout more than hunt, in the moment I'm talking about. So watch rather than hunt. Watch rather than hunt. Commit to that deer and that deer only. Don't get distracted. Um, and try to, try to put a pattern together with those pictures from previous years. Those three things, and, and you're going to be in a better, better position to kill that deer. Awesome. All right. Number four, enjoy the process. Have fun. Always make sure you got a smile on your face. If you're, if something's going on and you're hunting and you're not smiling, then you're the problem. I just promise you, man, just make sure every single moment is a blast. Yes. We, we just love it. That's great. I've, I've definitely been guilty in the past of letting my worries about trying to kill that deer stress me out and and take away that fun a little bit. So I'm trying to get better at that, Mark. So uh, great reminder. Got to. If you're not smiling every single setting, it's on you, not yeah, the animal. So true. So real quick before I let you go, is there anything we should be watching for new coming from, from DOD? Is there anything new on DeerCast? Any new content? Anything we w- you want to make sure we know about? Certainly. I mean, we do our, our semi-live series. We've been doing it now the last few years. We're on episode 16 already of Deer Season 23, which you can catch every single episode within DeerCast, or you can catch it on YouTube. Uh, we've got some some really cool stuff coming down the pipe with with DeerCast that we're very excited about. Um, I think the algorithm is probably more accurate right now than it's ever been. Anybody that's not ever downloaded it, give it a try. Um, but uh, all things Drury are found within DeerCast, no doubt. So that's that's the best way to keep up with us. Awesome. And of course, Facebook, Instagram, all the good stuff. So yeah, well, it's great stuff. I uh, I'm an annual user. I actually uh, upgraded this year so I could get your uh, rain checker because I wanted a convenient way to see what kind of water my food plots were getting. And that was very handy this year. Um, although it stressed me out some with this drought, but still I wanted to know. I was going to say, I know the answer, not enough. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but yeah, I can't recommend it all enough. So uh, it's great. And as always, Mark, uh, really enjoyed this. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. I appreciate it. It's always a pleasure getting on here and visiting with you. It's, it's a good, good time. Hopefully, we'll be able to do it soon again and have a story of that big old uh, pretty woods buck uh, hitting the ground, all right? He's in trouble, I think. I think. <laughs> I believe And that was three bucks in trouble. I, I, have a, I have a decent confidence level about both those deer, so we'll, we'll see. Probably won't kill either one now. <laughs> well, I wouldn't want to put the odds against you. It's going to happen. All right. I hope you enjoyed that one. Thank you for joining in. It's hunting season, baby. Have some fun. Good luck out there. And until next time, stay wired to hunt. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam 
can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on Seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. For three days only, save up to 30% off bestsellers from First Light, FHF Gear, Phelps Game Calls, and the Meat Eater Store. They'll also have for sale the Bear Grease Trucker Hats and Camo. They're included in the sale and all the great gear on First Light. Whether you're fishing, shed hunting, scouting, sighting in rifles, or cutting lanes, your gear needs to keep up with all your spring and summer pursuits. The sale has you covered. Hurry, the sale ends May 16th. Shop now at firstlight.com, F-I-R-S-T-L-I-T-E.com.